0: Hey, I want to welcome all of you uh, this morning. Uh, So grateful for the worship team leading us in worship here and really grateful that you're here, especially if you're new to Jesus. Um, I'm always um, so encouraged by many of you in the room who are on a journey. Maybe you're coming back to faith. Maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church. But for some of you, you're just exploring this for the first time. And so, um, so today we're talking about money. And so, welcome. You're probably wondering, as someone who is new to Jesus, you're like, when are they gonna talk about money? And if this is your first Sunday, it's the first Sunday we're gonna talk about money. And so, uh, but do not fear. Uh, I, I hope that there is a sense of humility in all of us, that we're all on this journey together. We're all seeking to just say, okay, Jesus, what would you have me do um, with my wallet, with my bank account? Um, uh, or as Ron Davis reminded us last week, of, with your wallet and your bank account. It all belongs to him. And so we're in week three of our series, Jesus and Money, following Jesus into a life of freedom, generosity, and joy. And I really hope those three words um, really stick with us as a community, that the reason we're doing this four-week series is to be a people who are freed up, who are generous, and who experience joy, that that the fear, the anxiety, the worry around money, um, that we just feel freed up and that our hearts are filled with joy. And so this series is part of our ongoing uh, vision to be a people apprentice to Jesus. We as a church have been asking the question in the last number of years, what does it mean to fully follow Jesus? We wanna know what it looks like to be changed and formed by Jesus. And that includes our relationship with money. Jesus has a lot to say about money. If you're new to the Bible, just so you know, it's a little shocking how much he talks about money. But the reason he did that is because he cares deeply about his followers and their relationship to money. So for these four weeks, I hope that you and I are beginning to experience this freedom, this generosity, this joy, as we learn to follow Jesus and his vision for money, And I want to thank Ron Davis who spoke last week. I thought he did an amazing job and pointing us to this idea that each of us, we don't own anything, that, that everything we have belongs to God and that we are stewards, simply stewards of everything God has given us. It was, it was wonderful last week. And just to let you know, next Sunday evening, so February 4th, Sunday evening, uh, Ron Davis is coming to lead our church in a financial workshop in the evening. So if you're interested in that, he's walking through six Financial Principles That Help Us Follow Jesus. And so the title is Kingdom Finances, Money in the Hands of an Apprentice of Jesus. And so it'll start at 6.30, like right when the 5 p.m. service is, is done. And uh, he's get, it's gonna be in this room. And just so you know, parents of high schoolers, middle schoolers, Dane, uh, our youth pastor, is gonna be leading a session, very similar to Ron's, at the same time. So high schoolers can can participate in that. So just wanna let you know that, it's exciting. As we began this series two two weeks ago, we began thinking about the generosity of God. What is God like? A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so when you and I think about God, do the words generous, giving, sacrificial, lavish, do those words come to mind? Think about God's love in Jesus on the cross. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Jesus, we thank you that we are so wealthy here. That's, it's not about our bank account or our wallets, the wealth we've received is this just incredible, generous, sacrificial love that you've poured out upon your people and we stand here so wealthy because we have you and your love, your nearness, your eternal life, your kindness and so we thank you for the way in which you are so generous and so loving and we pray that you would shape us to be a people, your people, who reflect your own heart so open our eyes as we open up your word teach us form us shape us we're listening amen okay so if you will would you turn to Luke chapter 20 um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 20 and we're going to look at verses 20 to 26 now just a little recap of where we're at here in this passage um, we're actually getting close to the cross and the resurrection. So the next number of weeks as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday, these are Jesus, some of his final days before he died on the cross. And in this passage, we're with Jesus, he's in the temple in Jerusalem. There are these religious leaders that do not like him and they're trying to find a way to arrest him. So that's a little bit of the background. So let's read what happens. Verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, this is a trap. They're asking Jesus about the head tax. When Jesus was just a young boy, a new head tax was introduced to the Roman Empire. Jews who were living under Roman occupation and oppression now had to pay more taxes. This head tax was in addition to taxes on goods and land. Jesus' friends and neighbors were living under heavy taxation. The taxes were going to an empire that was oppressing them. And the taxes we're leading to outrage among Jesus's community, right? His friends, his neighbors. When Jesus was just a young boy, a man named Judas of Galilee was outraged at the taxation of Rome. And he actually, as a Jew, led a violent uprising against Rome. We actually read a little bit about it in the book of Acts, chapter five. It won't be on the screen. Let me just read this for you. Verse, Acts 537, if you want to look at it. Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. So as we travel back to experience what people would have felt in this story, just know that there's anger in the air. The question being asked of Jesus is loaded. It's a trap. If Jesus rejects the Roman tax, he'll be seen as a dangerous revolutionary. Rome would have to kill him like Judas the Galilean. But if he agrees with the Roman tax, then he wouldn't be the Messiah, the leader of the people who the Messiah is supposed to release God's people from oppression. So he'd be a sellout. His his movement would be meaningless. So one answer gets him killed by Rome. The other answer makes him pointless, not the real Messiah. You see the trap here, right? Jesus, This is the question being asked, really. Are you on God's side or Caesar's side? So the religious leaders of Jesus' day think they have him in checkmate. But Jesus has one more move. By the way, Jesus always has one more move. Jesus responds by asking for a coin. Verses 23 to 24, he saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. Luke says, Jesus saw through their duplicity. He saw through their hypocrisy. How are they being two-faced? How are they being duplicitous? Well, they're carrying an idol in their pocket. Notice Jesus asked, whose image is on the coin? Jesus always likes to answer with a question. Whose image is on the coin? And they pull out a silver denarius, as this was the coin used for the head tax. On one side of a silver denarius is a picture of the Roman emperor with the words Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus, which is Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of a silver denarius is a picture of a woman on a throne with a crown holding an inverted, an inverted spear and a palm branch. And the words read, pontifex maximus, which means high priest. This side of the coin proclaimed the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. This coin, if you look at both sides and taking it together, proclaimed that Caesar was, listen to this, son of God and high priest son of God, and high priest. Those are titles that later Christian worshipers would give to Jesus alone. So the coin was a portable idol of the cult of Caesar, the emperor, and it was propaganda. It's propaganda. Now, Jesus is standing in the temple. This is the holy place of the people of Israel. You were not allowed to bring idols into the temple. So you might be interested to know that there were alternate coins printed in Jesus' day for Jews to be able to use them in the temple without Caesar's image. Isn't that interesting? Jews knew that they could not carry an idol into the temple, so they would use these copper coins. But these guys, notice Jesus, what he does, these guys have brought an idol into the temple. Standing in the temple, the holy place of Israel. Only God is to be worshipped there. So Jesus has caught them. He's caught them in their hypocrisy. And he says to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. What's he saying? He's saying, give that thing, pointing to the coin. Give Caesar his idols back. Give Caesar his idols back, but give God what is God's. Which leads one to ask, what is God's? What belongs to God? Everything. As you heard last week from Ron, right? We're stewards, we're not owners. Everything we have belongs to God. Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The earth belongs to God. The very men who are trying to trap Jesus, they belong to God. They are image bearers. They're made in his image. 100% of who they are belongs to God, so why do they have an idol in their pocket? So this is what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, and these are my own words, he's saying, guys, give Caesar his coin back. You use the Roman aqueducts. You use the Roman roads. You're part of the trade of the Roman Empire. So be a good citizen. Give him his coin back. But your worship, your whole life belongs to God. You carry right now in your pocket an idol. You you carry something that has the power to define you, to demand its worship from you, and to blind you. Don't let that idol define you. Let Caesar have his idols back and let God have his image on earth back, that's you. That's everything about you. Followers of Jesus for 2,000 years have had to wrestle with our interactions with Caesar, with governments, with empires, with taxes. Every apprentice of Jesus for 2,000 years has had to work this one out. But Jesus' greatest concern for each of his followers is that they see that they are stewards, that everything they have is his. Everything we have is his, and we offer everything back to him in worship. So if it all belongs to God, a follow-up question after Jesus shares this in the temple would be this. Then Jesus, how do I give God what is God's? This is our big question today as a church. It's the question every follower of Jesus must ask. If it all belongs to God, how do I give God what is God's? And we're gonna look at three specific areas today. How do we spend, save, and give in a way where we are giving all things to him? Spending, saving, giving. Number one, let's talk about spending. How do we, as apprentices of Jesus, spend in a way where we give God what is God's? Of course, we have to spend. We have to spend on clothes, shelter, food, gifts. As I mentioned two weeks ago, we do not want to be frivolous in our spending. But the first thing I'd like to say today is we also don't want to be the cheap guy. Who's the cheap guy? The cheap guy doesn't tip well. He conveniently forgets his wallet, quote unquote, when out with friends. His favorite pastime is complaining about the cost of things and he's prone to argue with a retail worker on the price of something, knowing that that retail worker has little control over the cost of that item. To be cheap is to say things like, quote, we aren't giving gifts for each other anymore. Forgetting that gift giving, which does not have to be expensive, that it's simply a tangible expression of love. Gift giving mirrors the heart of God. Judas was cheap. Judas was the cheap guy. And I've often identified with Judas. Actually, I see a lot of myself in Judas. Remember the story where Judas watches a woman take expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet? Remember how angry it made Judas? In his greed, he just could not stand it when she wasted all of that on Jesus. It angered him. He protested and said that the money could be used for the poor, Oh, I've got so much to say about this story. Okay, so he's like, he's, he looks outwardly like a good steward, right? Hey, shouldn't we be? And he looks like he cares for the poor, right? Yet the comment was a facade. It was masking this deep greed in his own heart. I want that money. I want that money spent on something here. In my life, I so resonate with Judas in that moment. And it's not good. How do I spend in a way where I'm giving God what is God's? Well, it's not by being cheap. It's not the Judas way. But it's also not by frivolous spending or through frivolous spending. Let me ask a very deep philosophical question to you. How many shoes do you need? (laughs) Like, it's going to take a while to think that one through. But just think about it. Well, there's combinations, and it has to match. And then, oh. So just in your mind, travel in your head to wherever you store your shoes, maybe one place or a couple places. Like, how many are there, right? What kind of phone do I actually need? How many meals out do I need? How many screens? How many coffees? How much alcohol? How many streaming platforms? How many items of that stuff we're collecting? You know that stuff you're collecting? When are you going to be done collecting it? (laughs) You're like, you don't understand. Collections are never done. When will we have enough? I mean, it's honestly, it's a real question. I know I'm asking a lot of questions, not offering lots of answers, but it's just these are the questions that an apprentice of Jesus asks. It's like, okay, so when would I know that I had enough, right? When would I know that I have what I need? Where then would it be wise for me to cut back in order to give away more? Randy Alcorn writes this. Many who say I have nothing to give spend large amounts of discretionary income on cars, clothes, coffee, entertainment, phones, computers, and so on. They have nothing to give when they're done spending precisely because they're never done spending. Then, when they run out of money, they think it's because they didn't have enough. So true, so true. Uh, During COVID, Tanya and I um, were thinking through uh, our coffee situation. And so we bought a $700 Breville espresso machine. I know some of you have this machine. We thought we'd make this investment because Tanya and I noticed that we were drinking s- drinks from Starbucks, Saba, Blacksmith, Republica. <laughs> I just keep going. And we were like, we need to cut that down. We need to cut that down. And so we get this espresso machine. And now, join me in the theory. The theory is, we're spending a lot now, but let's do the math. By next time, this year, next time, or whatever, this time next year, and the next year, we'll be saving money. Actually, we'll be saving such money that we could give so much more to missions, or something like that. How do you think that went for us? (laughs) The Price family has found a way to spend $700 on an espresso machine and still spend probably the same amount of coffee at Starbucks, Saba, (laughs) Backspin <laughs> Republica. At what point would we say to ourselves, do we have a problem, right? Like at what point would we say, do we have a coffee problem? And what? And I promise, it's a real question we are asking. What if we could cut back in order to actually bless others more? What if we could simplify our spending in order to grow in generosity? What if we could be content? <laughs> First Timothy six but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have, here's the big list, food and clothing, we will be content with that. Food and clothing, Paul, I think there's more to contentment, right? A few more items there. But no, he had learned to be content. How can I be content with what God has given? to live and spend within my means? How do we spend in a way where we give God what is God's? Can I just pause and say, these are tricky questions, and I think Jesus is gonna lead each of us in the room in faithfulness, he's gonna be faithful to us, and it might look different than others in the room, right? But the question we're asking is, are we even asking this question? And are we walking together in community one of the saddest things is, I think this is the most taboo topic. We think like sexuality is taboo to talk about in our small groups, or we think politics is too taboo to talk about in our small groups. What about money? How many of us are going, actually, we need a lot of wisdom coming up? We're actually struggling with debt. We would love your prayers. You know, if these are trusted people, we would love your wisdom. You know, how do we walk through this as followers of Jesus? It's so silent, it's so private. Are we asking these kind of questions? Let's take it a layer deeper when it comes to spending. How do we honor God by spending on products that are made justly? What about justice and our care for the people who make the products? How are they being treated around the world? You'll know that Jesus says that to fulfill the Torah, to fulfill the law, we are to love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So when you purchase something, how are you loving your neighbor around the world, your global neighbor? We buy a shirt at a cheaper price and we pat ourselves on the back and go, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, you spent less, but at what cost? What about the worker in Bangladesh, in Thailand, in China? How are they treated? We buy food that is very cheap. But how is the food harvested? How well are the workers treated? Are we loving our neighbor around the world as we make certain purchases? And so here's the tricky thing. Could we, as we buy less, potentially pay more for something that's made justly? That you know, you trust that the workers were paid well right? As you care and love your neighbor on the other side of the world. I've been recently learning a lot about chocolate, actually. And in 2020, just four years ago, the U.S. Department of Labor reported that 1.6 million children are working as slaves in the chocolate industry, harvesting cocoa beans, particularly in West Africa. 1.6 million children, large companies like Mars, Nestle, Hershey, are enabling this kind of slavery around the world? How does Jesus want me to buy chocolate? Does that sound like a funny question? Well, maybe it should be a normal question. As I head out into the world to buy things, how would Jesus want me to buy it? How would he buy it? What would he buy? What are some of the questions around purchasing things that he would be asking? What are his priorities? I hope that doesn't sound like a small question. I think, I hope it it sounds like a discipleship question. Us. It was really fascinating for Tanya and I. We, we got to visit some churches in London. We were at an Alpha conference last year. And we were taken to these churches downtown London that were the center, the heart of the abolitionist movement. They were Christians who were, who were working against the slave trade. They were trying to crush the, the transatlantic slave trade. And they knew that a huge piece of, of the slave trade was sugar. Slaves in the Caribbean who were harvesting sugar that was used in the teacups of the British. And so they decided in order to cripple the slave trade, these Christians started boycotting Caribbean sugar. No sugar in the tea, which you know for British people, that's a big deal, right? No, but it's it's a tiny sacrifice to make to say, are we thinking about these things? How do we spend in a way where we give God what is God's? This is not easy. This is not easy. It requires wisdom. It requires thought. Now, let's talk about saving. How do we save in a way where we give God what is God's? Saving can be so good. Why do we save? Because we need to buy something without going into debt. Saving for school. Saving for a home. Saving for a car, saving for retirement, so good. But we also know that there are subtle ways in which we can do it poorly, and we can do it for the wrong reasons. We save out of fear that God will not give us daily bread. We save like misers, like a Scrooge. We save because we don't want to share. Do we look into our heart and and say, why am I saving? Why am I saving and when would I know if I had enough? Is there a number, you know? And if we ever hit that number, would we stop saving in order to bless others? Let's talk about saving to care for our family. We have a biblical duty to care for our families, for our children, for our parents, for our spouses, for our relatives. This is God's will for us. Look, look at how crystal clear this is. First Timothy 5.8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If you would like biblical clarity on something, there it is. We cannot wiggle out of any responsibility to care for our family. Saving is a huge part of that. Now, we hold that, that's true, but in the tension, how... Can finances and money not get entangled with unhealthy expectations and the feelings of entitlement? We're dealing, I'm told, with one of the largest wealth transfers in human history, where many of you who are boomers are getting older, you're thinking of passing on finances to the next generation. And there are a thousand ways that can go so badly. You think of the conflict between siblings about what they'll receive. You think of a younger generation and the unspoken waiting for the parent to die thing, right? It's evil. How can families speak openly with one another, setting clear expectations um, around inheritance? How could you as a family love one another by having open, clear, kind expectations? so that relationships of siblings stay intact, so that love between one generation to another stays intact. When we notice, when it comes to savings, that our family is well taken care of, that the next generation has what they need, are we obligated to continue to give to the next generation? Or could those resources be used for the poor, for evangelization, for scripture translation? I think the question each follower of Jesus has to ask is like, When is my savings account now just growing a little out of control? (laughs) Because in a sense, we can never save enough, right? I mean, think about it. You can never save enough. You would never have enough. And Jesus warns about a certain kind of saving. He tells a story about a man who had a huge harvest come in. And he builds bigger barns to be able to hold all of that harvest. His his, his current barn is too small. So this is savings, right? So he builds this big barn. Now, Jesus starts to critique this man because this man is storing up all this grain for himself. Now, you'll know that in the Bible, saving is not bad. Storing things is not bad, right? We read about this in Joshua, sorry, Joseph in Genesis. What is Joseph doing? He is saving grain so that in seven years of famine, people can eat. That's wonderful. God's not anti-savings, right? But the problem with this guy in his barns is that he's selfish. Unlike jo- Joseph in Genesis who's preparing for famine, trying to help others, this guy's saving for himself. We know that because Jesus says when he builds his bigger barn, he uses the language of my grain, my goods, my barn. My grain, my goods, my barn. <laughs> You see, he was storing this for himself. He built larger barns not to bless the community and love God or care for his family, but rather to eat, drink, and be merry. His plan now is to spend many years with his personal enjoyment being the center of his life. And North Langley, God calls him a fool. Take the parable of the man with the barns insert Freedom 55, right? And insert maybe the modern parable, he would talk about eating, drinking, and being merry in Cancun and in Palm Springs and whatever, right? Is this what you're gonna do with the rest of your money? Eat, drink, and be merry? You saved it for yourself. So This this rocks me, this story with Jesus. Because I say, well, how do I care for my family? How do we do the Joseph thing and plan for years where we're not gonna be earning income? It's important. And I don't wanna be the guy with the bigger barns. Do you see how how much wisdom this takes? (laughs) Are we talking about it? Are we praying about this? Are we trying to go, Jesus, show me how to do this well. I wanna be prepared, I wanna care for my family, but I don't wanna be the guy with the bigger barn. Show me how to do this. I'm an apprentice of yours. Teach me. Let's talk about giving. How do we give in a way where we give God what is God's? Giving will be our primary focus next week, but I want to lean into it just for a couple minutes right now. The first question to ask is Are we giving? Also, are we giving and expecting nothing in return? Are we using the money we have to bless the poor, the needy, the hurting? Are we, as followers of Jesus, taking a percentage of what we have to invest in things like clean water, education, scripture translation, mission workers, church planting, child sponsorship, microloan programs, food banks, helping fund research for all kinds of diseases and medical projects that need our support? Let me ask it this way, are we living beneath our means in order to be able to live a life of generosity? Could, Matthew, cut back spending, sell what we have, live on less, downsize, simplify, in order to have margin to give? And what if you and I could catch the joy of giving? Not giving in order to get a tax refund in the spring, right? That's we're not giving in order to get. That's not giving in order to get. But giving because God freely gave to us. Giving because the joy of Jesus leads us to giving because we love it because we've been changed. Cue mental image of Scrooge of Scrooge dancing down the streets with Tiny Tim on his shoulders. That's the joy, right, of generosity. There's joy there. And this is where Christians have found the spiritual practice of the tithe to be helpful. Some of you are new to Jesus and you're like, I always hear about tithing, what is that? Let me just take a minute to explain it. Tithing, tithe, is a word that simply means a tenth part. A tenth part, 10%. And Christians have practiced tithing in order to get our hearts in the right place. We take at least 10% of what we earn and we invest it in what God is doing around the world. It's a practice that goes back to ancient Israel. And I want you to listen to Cortines and Balmer describe the tithe in Israel. It's a little bit different than you might have expected. Listen to this, quote, most Israelites donated approximately 23% of their income every year, not 10%, as is commonly taught in churches today. 10% Levitical tithe plus 10% festival tithe plus 10% charity tithe given two out of seven years equals approximately (laughs) 22.9%. quite detailed, Uh, in seminary. I took a whole course on money in in the Bible. And this is is so accurate that it's it's almost 23%. And this is what Jews would give in the Old Testament. What would it look like for you and I to get our financial house in order so that we could start with 10% and build that throughout the years to 11, to 12, to 13, to 14? I know some of you in the room are giving much more than that. But we begin as apprentices of Jesus with the 10. And now, some Christians have protested this idea um, because it can feel quite rule-based or legalistic, which I understand, I totally get that. I have thought that many times as well. But one of the things that's been helpful for me is to think about the way I read my Bible every day, pray every day, come to church every week, Take communion once a month. Now you could say all of, you could do all of those things legalistically, right? Or we could see all of those things as rhythms and habits that shape us. They're rhythms and habits that shape us. Now, our church is very against legalism. And what is legalism? Legalism is a a habit of doing things trying to earn God's love by doing them. God, but we reject that. God first loved us. We are not trying to earn God's love. As disciples and apprentices of Jesus, what we get to do is to practice rhythms that set our heart free. See, this 10%, it, God owns 100%, right? But the 10 is a great like placeholder. It's like a rhythm. It's a reminder that God owns 100%, Right? It's just a spiritual practice that has helped many of us as we follow Jesus. Let me say it this way. Tithing allows us to put into practice a habit that will free us to be generous. I mean, every month you gotta think about God. You're like, okay, okay, how am I gonna do it this month? Right? How are we gonna structure things? How are we gonna give this away? Tithing provides this rhythm of generosity and it has freed my heart. So, We take at least 10% to give to the work of God in the world, to the local church, to mission, to the poor, to church planting, to evangelism, to clean water, right? 10% is the start and we let it grow. Some Christians believe that Jesus doesn't talk about tithing, that's actually not true. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is in a heated conversation with some religious people. But in that conversation, he does something fascinating. He tells these religious leaders not to neglect the tithe. You can check that out, Matthew 23, 23. Jesus encourages us to tithe. Here's, Randy Alcorn talks about the 10% experiment, because I know many of us, if we're not tithing, we're like, how could we ever do that? And uh, he has a bit of a, a weird way of getting us to think about it. He says this, he says, if today your workplace had to come to you and make some cuts, and they cut your salary by 10%, would you die? And he goes, no, you would live. What would you do? You would learn to live within 90% of what you were earning before, and you would carry on, right? Now, what if you just imagined today that your employer did cut your salary by 10%? (laughs) Try on living on the 90 and see what happens you instantly have 10% you can now play with. 10% to be generous with. And then you start looking around, and you're like, God, lead me to people who have needs. Lead me to someone who needs this, right? And then you catch the joy of giving, and it is so fun, right? That's kind of a morbid morbid way to do it. It's like, you know, imagine you just got slashed 10%. So anyway, hope you take this the right way. It's just a fun way of thinking about it. Okay, so... uh, but I, wanna, I just want to talk about my own life, and really quick, in my own story, back to Judas. Um, I actually had a problem, and I think I still carry the problem a little bit, but I had a real dislike of rich people. I actually really struggled around wealthy people. I think deep down, well, I thought it was a self-righteous thing, and I actually had a professor at Trinity really help me find some healing in seeing God and his heart and the world um, for what it really is. And actually, as the years have gone on, I've noticed that I think this envy that I had, this self-righteousness that I had, was masking this, this deep desire for more money in my life. And it was only actually in marrying Tanya, actually Tanya is very generous, and um, she comes from a very generous family, and my parents are generous, so I don't know what happened with me anyway. Uh, but kind of this anomaly, but it was not good. And I, and I think, I think as I've learned from others, and especially Tanya, to give, um, God has, you know, this, this like, putting these practices in where we have to be generous, it doesn't always feel good. But I've learned a lot and I have experienced this freedom and to a place, and I'm not making this up just because I'm up here on stage, but like to find, to get to a place that you're freed up and you're giving and that there's joy there. And then you start to look at all people in a way where you're not judging them by their wealth. Um, But they're your brother, they're your sister. And yeah, it's a whole story. Yeah, I can't tell it all right now, but you know, you move from feeling like you're a Robin Hood or something, <laughs> or just like Justice Crusader or something like that, to going, hold on, hold on. God is using all kinds of people in all kinds of situations for his kingdom, and um, and there's so much to learn in order to be generous, and it starts here, starts here. So I, op- I have to open up my life and go, God, start with me. <laughs> How can I be generous? And it was really fun, actually, yesterday, um, uh, yesterday we introduced to our kids these like little jars so one's a giving saving spending jar um and in order to practice this Randy Alcorn in his book says this would be a good idea so um so I was like ah here I am learning about it this week I'm preaching on it we got to do it okay kids pull out these jars and they had fun with it last night they were like you know drawing on their little jars and you know they're going to give save spend and I hope that they grow up with this freedom uh, and joy. Um, just you know, this little project might completely fail. Just, you know, started last night. So <laughs> let you know how it goes. But anyway, small decisions matter. Let me end with this. Small decisions matter. As apprentices of Jesus, these little decisions about spending, saving, giving, they matter. They matter. Lewis, talks about how we're formed by these little decisions. He writes this, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. And here's his point. Everything you do, how you spend, how you save, how you give, is shaping you. It's forming us, and our prayer today as we end is simply, Jesus, form me, shape me. How do I spend, save, give in a way where I'm giving God what is God's? Let's stand together. Let's stand, and we're gonna pray. And as we pray, our prayer team is ready to pray for us in the prayer room, up front, And they would love to pray. If you are just here today feeling some anxiety around money, they'd love to pray for your healing. If you're looking for provision, right? Lord, I can't make ends meet, you know? If you're looking for wisdom, if there's anything else going on, it doesn't even have to be related to money, they'd love to pray for you. But there's actually two kind of little prophetic words from our prayer team today. One is this. They really feel like there's some people here today who have anxiety around taxes, around taxes, and they would love to pray for you. So if you could just make your way to the prayer room or up front, they'd love to pray. And um, and also that there's some of you who actually work in finance. You're actually responsible for people's financial status. You're trying to coach them, lead them, help them. And you are starting to experience the weight of that role. Our prayer team would love to pray for you. So just Two categories of very specific of people who who might need prayer. So let's close our eyes, let's pray, spend some time here. Jesus, we pray that in the next couple minutes as we sing these songs that you would shape us. We want you. We look to the cross and we see this great outpouring of generosity. We see your blood shed for us. And we're so grateful for the riches of your grace and the riches of forgiveness that we've received. And we want our hearts to be shaped like that. We want this freedom and this joy as we follow you. So would you come and move and form us? Amen.